Several episodes ago, we discussed the horrific school shooting in Nashville, Tennessee. They killed six students and staff. And in that episode, we talked about the importance of redefining school safety. On today's show, a conversation with a student organizer in Nashville who's showing us all how to lead with prevention and love. listening. I'm Joe Bishop. This is our Children Can't Wait, a podcast about the systems and structures to keep our kids from flourishing. Our Children Can't Wait is also a book from Teachers College Press, available for purchase from Amazon. And if you're new to the Our Children Can't Wait podcast, please follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I was at a national education conference listening to the inspiring words of Vanderbilt University professor, Rich Milner. Vandy, as people call it, is in Nashville. Rich shared just how much the shooting at Covenant School had impacted him. His stories about how high school students in Nashville are leading a new movement to prevent violence and discrimination in school caught my attention. One rising senior in Nashville named Alima Kasim has implemented a restorative justice model at her school as an example of a new youth movement. And she's done this while becoming an accomplished track star in the state of Tennessee. Hi everyone, my name is Alima. I go to the University School of Nashville in Tennessee and I'm an upcoming senior. So I'm really excited to be on this podcast today and talk about the important stuff. And Alima, so what have you learned from what I understand you've been doing track most of your life? What's different? What are the parallels between track and student organizing, which you do both all the time? I definitely say that there's like a lot of similarities. Hard work is one of the big things that I could kind of draw a parallel to. You have to work really, really hard with like organizing things at school, making sure, you know, everyone is on the same page. Compare it to like a relay team, you kind of have to have like all the parts in place and everyone needs to know what they're doing to get a good Mm -hmm. handoff. So everything will go smoothly. And that's just like activism at our school. Mm. And it's like when I'm leading things and I'm trying to get students to take a stance, you want everyone to understand what they're doing and what they're talking about. So everything goes smoothly. And it's most important to kind of like work as a team because that's when you can get your point across the best. Yeah, no. And and until you started talking, I was thinking about oddly that the similarities in the training and, and working with others. So for folks who haven't been to Nashville, tell us more about Nashville. Yes, it's a city famous for country music, but what else do we need to know about Nashville? Honestly, I've been living here since like my whole entire life. I was born in Vanderbilt and I've been Mm. going to school next to Vandy for the past Mm. like 11 years. Mm. And it's like, it's a nice town. There's a lot of different areas. So like it's known for like, it's kind of country music and around like our school and stuff. There's a lot of producing companies but you can honestly walk like a couple blocks and it's like a completely different town or a completely mm. different area. So it really depends. It's changed a lot due to like gentrification and stuff around the area. But I don't know. I've lived there my whole life. I love it. I mean, obviously I want to explore different places, but like it's a really nice area and I like it a lot. And Nashville as a city, 
is hyper segregated? Yes or no? You're near the university, which is kind of a different part of Nashville, but how would you describe the demographics? Or you said you go down certain neighborhoods or changes or it's different, or could you speak more to that? I would say that I can walk like about two blocks down, two to three blocks down from my school off Edge Hill. And you'll see like an inner city community just right there. Cause I Mm -hmm. practice sometimes at a track that's just down the road. Mm -hmm. And like, you kind of cross, there's like a very like clear border and it's like goes from gentrified houses and like those tall and skinny houses that they've been building in Nashville a lot. And it goes straight from that to like inner city communities. It's a really, really like abrupt kind of like change. So like Mm. I saw all of that being developed when I was like a little kid and Mm. it's changed a lot, but I would say like for the majority of it around the like USN Nashville area, it's pretty like modern and stuff but then there's like those small areas where you're like wow this is like what it used to be and then you see how much it's changed in the past like 10-15 years mm-hmm. it's kind of scary to think that people can build that so fast and it's kind of driving a lot of people who are originally in the neighborhood out because they're building a lot of centers and stuff that'll be a part of Vandy and like our school Our Children Can't Wait is the book I wrote I made this podcast to further conversation with you. Maybe you're an administrator, a parent, a student. Maybe you make policy at the state level, or maybe you just want to learn more about this topic. So we can keep the conversation going. Please email me at joe at ourchildrencantwait.com. I'd love to hear from you. Our Children Can't Wait is a production sponsored by the Center for the Transformation of Schools at UCLA. And the book is published by Teachers College Press. Funding comes from the Stewart Foundation and the National Education Association. And if you haven't clicked follow on the podcast, please stop and do that now. Rate and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. As we've discussed in this podcast, ideas of school safety often center on knee-jerk reactions to school violence. Strategies that ignore the root causes of why tensions can escalate in schools. Sometimes tensions rise when students feel targeted or discriminated against. That's why Alima is working hard to make school safety a positive phrase for her peers, built on ideas of trust and belonging. It's the secret sauce often missing in schools. For our Children Care Way, we've talked about housing and segregation as, as themes of the book and themes of, of the podcast. So I'm curious, something that cuts across all these issues, school and community safety, which is an area that you've got deeply involved with as a, a student organizer and expert. What does school and community safety mean to you, Alima? For me, I think that school and community safety is making sure that students can kind of, they understand what's going on around them. Because obviously there's not a way to like protect everyone from everything and having students have an understanding of that goes a long way. For school, especially as we've seen in like the coming years, it's school like we used to think it was like probably one of the safest places you send your kids there, kind of they come home. But like in today's light, we see that like even school, like a place where students are supposed to learn Mm -hmm. can in some cases, not be the safest area for them. So like looking at it now, it's just kind of like having students understand safety and be able to 
count on both each other and the faculty around them and the staff around them is what safety means to me. And just being able to let people into communities and spaces that we know we're comfortable with and making sure like there's a sense of familiarity. I mean, obviously people say like stranger danger and things like that, but like we also know that like strangers can often be the ones who help you. So making sure we're just in a community where we generally feel like the people around there are safe and we have a lot of like support systems to help students just in case they feel unsafe is definitely one of the most important things. And that's what safety looks like for me. When you think about school safety, I think about race and identity. Do you feel like those notions are, are different from you, even in terms of how people might perceive who you are? How do you think about that? Or how, how does that impact you? I would definitely say that like being born and raised kind of like in a predominantly white community, the things that like I consider normal, like as like a black American and a student, like in these communities is different from like most of my peers. And I guess if you're translating that to like safety and like kind of people and like being around the areas that I am, Mm. I don't think that I specifically have felt like much different than anyone just because I've been there for so long. Like I've been at my school for so long, Mm -hmm. but it does seem that like when like different people come into our communities who might not look exactly like us like there's a little bit more like hesitancy like around them and kind of like what they may look like and a little bit more judgment which is like obviously normal to have like people have their implicit biases Mm -hmm. we kind of like try to shed those from like the our way of thinking but like sometimes we can't control that but in general like I haven't felt that way but I do like and have heard from people who do feel that way in spaces around me You've been intimately involved at your school site in organizing around school safety issues. Could you share more of of the kind of work you've been doing? Yeah. Well, in my school community, um, me and my peer, Olivia Jelzma, and I also worked on this with both of my siblings, Mariah and Maya Kazim. We worked Mm. on a restorative justice project in our school, and we're still trying to implement that. And it targets identity-targeted violence in our community. So that could be anything from, like, students, like, discriminating against each other based off like gender identifiers or racial identifiers, or maybe saying like racial slurs. Mm -hmm. And we kind of take that and we understand that like students, when they're put in like disciplinary actions and like disciplinary boards, we kind of feel that that's not really a way to rid students from that way of thinking. And it's just honestly like a slap on the wrist and sending a student away for like suspension or something like that. It might not help them in the long run, like understand why what they did was like something that someone shouldn't ever do to anyone. So we created this committee where we kind of see these targeted violences that are committed against people. And we try to find like a restorative way to sit down both the person who harmed one other person, the person who like received harm and help Mm -hmm. them understand like why what they did is bad and a way to move forward to help them find a restorative way that both helps like the community around them and both the individuals, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. And what, what's it like to organize with your family members? I'm just curious. <laughs> what's that like? It's definitely interesting. I mean, like, obviously when something needs to get done, she can just walk over to my room and tell me to get it done. But <laughs> my sister, she, both my older siblings graduated mm. within the past two years. So they've kind of like, 
put that project onto me and my friend Olivia Jelsma, who goes to my school. So mm-hmm. we've been really the main people working on it as of now. But when we did work on it, it was kind of a lot of planning and we spent a lot of time during the day meeting with our faculty sponsors and then meeting with one of our like sponsors who was in Vanderbilt and she helped us along the way. And I would say that like they got the idea and then I thought it was really, really cool. And so I was like, I want to help you guys on this. Mm. And like, yeah, it's really nice working with family members, especially since like they would recommend me a lot of books and stuff. And she did like an independent study on restorative practices mm. and kind of got a whole understanding of it. They wrote a proposal that was like about like a, probably like a hundred pages long. And it was like nice being able to see how someone else interpreted this and their understandings of that. And then like draw my own understandings and kind of contribute to a way that we can all voice our ideas. That's amazing. And how long has the restorative justice committee or kind of group been working at your school site together, starting with your older siblings and now with you? I would say it's going on its fourth year, I think. They began planning it when I was like coming into my freshman year of high school. Mm -hmm. So they were organizing that. And then as they graduated and I was about like a sophomore, Olivia and I kind of took that over and then we worked on it this year. And we're looking to implement it by the fall. So we're really excited about that. Tell me more about that. What does that look like? That looks like a group of people, about eight people with, I'd say about three to four faculty sponsors. Hmm. And when like a case would come in where someone had an identity targeted violence committed upon them, we would kind of sit that group of people down and use one of the modules in this, the big book of restorative justice that we reference a lot. And we'd use like a certain protocol that was fitting for like the situation that happened and kind of have a conversation with both the victim and the offender. Mm-hmm. And we kind of like have different sessions and talk about what happened and then like kind of stress like the victim kind of telling the person who did that crime upon them, explaining to them why that made them feel a certain type of way and why like it kind of has like a lot of educational benefits too because it shows them like kind of what in history may have like made them feel a certain way about the topic and why they wouldn't want that to be like said to them or like acted upon to them. And then after that certain session is over, we'd have like reoccurring meetings that would like check on the victim, check on the offender, see if they're doing okay. And like after that, we'd have like steps moving forward or like different things we wanted like the victim or the offender to do to like kind of move forward in that community. What kind of response have you been getting from the teachers and administrators at your school to your work? Teachers and Administrators have been really supportive along the way. Like, I would want to shout out Ms. Sachs. She's been our faculty sponsor for the past three years. And she's been really, really helpful in trying to, like, help different faculty members, like, understand the project that we're trying to implement in our community. And it's, at first, it's kind of something that's a little bit hard to, like, grasp at first, because one would think that you just kind of, like, if someone did something like that, you'd suspend them or expel them. But like taking that restorative approach can really do a lot of good for a certain community. And we've kind of looked across like organizations and schools around the country and mm-hmm. seen like groups that have done this and seen like their community's reaction to that. And all of them have been really positive. And so we think that it'd be 
great idea in our community. Faculty members have been on board with it and we're kind of like at the home run of the um, committee and we're hopefully looking to implement that soon because we think it'd be like great for our USN community. Restorative justice approaches are the centerpiece of Alima's work, which focus on strengthening relationships between individuals as well as social connections within communities. Alima, her sister and friends, have helped establish strategies that tap into the innate human need for meaningful relationships to thrive in the same way we need food, shelter, and clothing. None of that desire went away as a result of the Covenant School shooting in Nashville. In fact, the importance of their work became even more evident to students, teachers, and staff at Alima School. Thinking about school shootings at Covenant School, you think about this, this work had begun prior to that. How has it shifted your thinking around restorative work? It's been a very difficult time still, and it still is today, but tell us more about what does that mean for you? So it really hasn't like changed our like perspective on restorative practices, I would say as a whole, especially for that certain case, like, and for cases like that, obviously like a school committee, letting out our opinions on that wouldn't be the greatest idea, but we do think that like school shootings like that should be something that like the police handle just because that's that's like a, I would say a school is like a sacred environment for students. So we kind of focus on identity targeted violence within the school community, whether that's like towards a student of color and things like that. And like the Covenant shooting was really, really close to home. And it was like a situation that like we never would have thought of would have happened in the national community. Obviously, like we knew something like that could happen because it's been happening around the country, but it kind of feels a lot different when it's that close to school. Like it was literally like maybe two or three miles away from our community. Mm-hmm. We we're still trying to implement these things in our school and make sure that like students feel safe. But then it's also like a lot has to come from like our safety departments that we've like implemented the school with like administration. So that's like our like Vanderbilt like police department kind of being on campus and like monitoring students and like people who are outside of our school to make sure that our community is both safe outside and in. And the university school is, is it on the campus of Vanderbilt or right, right outside? I mean, you're extremely close or? Yeah. So we're right next to Vanderbilt's campus. I would honestly say that we're kind of surrounded by Vanderbilt's campus. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So all of their, like everything's connected, like even their like lighting and heating and cooling systems connected to our school. So Vanderbilt Police is also on our campus. And what do you think other students could learn from you and what you're doing? I mean, I think that most of like my peers at school, like understand what I'm doing. And a lot of them do the same things themselves. Hmm. And it's just like a matter of like, believing and um, taking action upon how our safety is just as important as everyone else's. And so creating like a community where everyone feels comfortable is probably one of the best things that we can do because avoiding all, I mean, like in an ideal world, we wouldn't have to have like a restorative justice committee because everyone Mm. would kind of respect each other's identifiers. Mm. So just creating that safer environment where everyone can feel heard and listened to is like definitely what I'd want everyone to hear. 
Have you talked to other students? It sounds like you've been researching across the country, other models, but are there students coming to you in Nashville or other schools trying to learn from you? Or it sounds like you're doing such fantastic work. So we have like talked to other schools around Nashville. I mean, most of them don't have like a restorative justice committee specifically in their school. Mm. Most of them are structured around like a disciplinary board or things mm. will go straight to like either their headmaster or like principal if something like that happens. Mm. So a lot of their disciplinary boards, like they use restorative practices, but like our belief on that is kind of like having a disciplinary board goes against the restorative justice like approach in general, but you can still implement some restorative practices into that. So a lot of people use those different methods, but it's like not quite what we were looking for in our community. Yeah. It sounds like inherently if you have a disciplinary committee, you're not as open to restorative thinking, right? Yeah. Alima, you've also been doing a lot of work around climate justice efforts. When you talk about identity-centered violence in schools, what parallels are you seeing around climate justice issues? Or even like, tell us more more about that work, because I'm, I'm really fascinated. Just, just how much you're doing is pretty inspiring. So like recently... I wouldn't say recently, a couple months ago, I did do like a youth climate summit in partnership with the Mayor's Youth Council. And we heard like a lot of different opinions from like lawmakers and different students who were speaking out about that. And we were kind of just talking about how like there are a lot of parallels between like racial justice and things like that and like climate justice. It was a lot about like different communities Although we like talk about like climate justice and people being able to do certain things to like reduce their carbon footprint, we also wanted to draw on how like not everyone can afford to do those things. We would say like people buying like efficient cars or like mm. finding these like vehicles or like different ways to like transport themselves that were like more efficient for our communities. But we also wanted to like identify the fact that not everyone had the funds to like provide that. Mm -hmm. It's a racial issue, but it's also like a um, financial issue because we like talk about climate justice a lot in communities, but like sometimes we fail to like draw upon the different like economic disparities among different groups. We just kind of stress that importance of like finding ways to be sustainable, like ecologically Mm -hmm. sustainable but like in ways that like everyone could do, not just people who had a lot of money. For the mayor's council, like what are the next steps for that group? Well, I served on the mayor's youth council for two years. So I found out recently that since I do track so much and it's like kind of taking up my Mondays, we usually meet on Mondays. Mm-hmm. It wasn't going to work out with my schedule this year anymore because I wouldn't be able to attend any of the meetings. Mm-hmm. But there's still like a really awesome group. I recommended a lot of my peers at school that they should come like join it because it's a really awesome group and shout out to them. And they kind of work on different things. Like I worked on public health this year and the year before I worked on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it's just like an awesome group. They worked with Mayor Cooper for the past two years, trying to come up with ways for Nashville to be like a more inclusive and safe environment for people while like educating students on diversity and like public health. We kind of don't want to present on COVID because we felt like a lot of people already knew about that. Right. But we talked about um, sexually transmitted diseases in the Nashville area. And Mm. we saw that like Nashville was one of the highest places that like people were 
contracting these diseases. And so mm. we wanted to educate like both high school and college students about how to like practice safe sex in their like communities. And we just wanted to like avoid. A lot of people didn't have like the resources or their schools didn't teach them about that. And so we were trying to be an outlet for people to understand why like their actions and like how they interact with other people can like affect them in the long run. As Alima points out, there's a lot of schools that have a disciplinary board for dealing with discipline in schools. That represents the old way of ideas of school safety that have not served students or schools well. But what if every school had a restorative justice committee like the one Alima Kasim and her friends have developed, led by students themselves? How would school feel different? And by creating these types of structures, could we set the stage for more youth-led decision-making outside of school, like a mayor's youth council in Nashville that Alima had participated in. The possibilities are endless when adults step back and young people are given an opportunity to step forward. In many cases, student leaders are often running laps around adults with their ability to make big things happen. Alima, you have a lot to look forward to and a lot to accomplish. You've already done so much, but what are you looking forward to more around organizing and advocacy for this this next school year. I'm the leader of like Albany and our school community so each month is usually like a month that celebrates like a different minority group. I usually try to figure out some presentations and stuff we can show our school community and like teach them about the different groups that surround us. So I'm going to definitely focus on that this year and making sure everyone can like understand the different practices that different cultures have in their mm. community and like make sure everyone can just be like culturally aware of different people around them. And then I definitely say like a lot of volunteer work. I mean, mm. I'm hoping to volunteer with Vanderbilt to do some research, hopefully on like neuroscience. So those are my goals. Which department of Vanderbilt or what, what are you thinking? Tell us more. Yeah, I was like set up to do an internship or I, I don't really know if it was an internship or it was like a just like our research-based like volunteer work at the Vanderbilt Neuroscience Clinic with Dr. Emerson. Mm. And like that ended up not working out for us this specific summer, but I'm hoping to do something like that during the school year. It's kind of like emailing around, talking to different people to see which like department will let me in. Cause it takes like a lot of registering and stuff to get approved by Vanderbilt. But I'm hoping to do research in the neuroscience clinic, but like wherever I end up is wherever I end up. No, that's exciting. Well, here's a question we like to ask, the last question. What's the one thing you want listeners to take away from our conversation today? We've covered a lot of topics. You've shared a lot about yourself and your work, which I really appreciate. But what's the one thing you want folks to to hear and understand? I would definitely say that making a change in like a certain community doesn't have to like just be something that is like one big change. It starts from like grassroots things. Like, as I talked about for the Restorative Justice Committee, it didn't just take off immediately. Like, it took a lot of work and it took, like, multiple years. And so, like, if you work towards something and you really, really care about it, it'll take a long time. But, like, once that finally pays off, like, it'll be worth it. There's always light that shines through the darkest of situations.
This is Our Children Can't Wait. Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Bishop. Our Children Can't Wait is a podcast by the Center for the Transformation of Schools and the School of Education and Information Studies at UCLA. Support for today's show is provided by the Stewart Foundation and the National Education Association. Elizabeth Windham is the producer for the show. Julia Windham is the associate producer. Geneva Sum is a creative director and senior producer is Jay Woodward. Our Children Can't Wait is a companion to the book of the same name, Our Children Can't Wait, available now on Teachers College Press and Amazon. Our Children Can't Wait is produced by Windhaven Productions and Blue Jay Atlantic.